This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Tonight, Kevin will be talking about San Diego's dreams and how our civic ambitions were expressed and realized through Balboa Park. Let's give a warm welcome to Kevin Starr. Thank you very much, uh, Stephen, for that introduction. I regret not being state librarian anymore because I could then extend a remission of any overdue fines that any of you would have in your local libraries. But uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here in this great campus. And every time I come here, I see different phases of it, etc. It really is a remarkable place. And when you consider the relative youth of this university, played off against its extraordinary prestige uh, on a planetary basis. I mean, it really is a remarkable achievement uh, for this city, for this university, and for, and for the state. Now, I, coming today, uh, I, I was late this morning because the pilot of my plane was caught in the elevator in San Francisco. And so we had to wait till another plane came from San Diego to, uh, to take us back. But I, I, real, I didn't realize when I came in later how uh, very much part of this uh, talking about Balboa Park and the Panama California exhibition, et cetera, had become part of, uh, of public discourse here in, in uh, San Diego, what, what it should mean, what it, what it uh, might mean. And so for tonight, I'd like to sort of look at the fair in a way. As we run through, incidentally, I'm not going to lecture to... I'm not going to lecture to uh, images. Just think of this as when Kenneth Rexroth used to pr- uh, recite jazz, recite poetry to jazz. Just see these images, etc. You'll see as cross images come available, to be, things I've said, you'll, you'll be able to assemble things for yourself. Uh, to, as- to assemble then what this uh, extraordinary exposition meant in terms of the effort to assemble uh, the um, San Diego identity, because cities have identities, they assemble senses of, of themselves. Now, for the 19th century, the 19th century loved expositions as means of showcasing past, present, and future achievement. The first of these expositions, that of London, opened in 1851 in the Crystal Palace in Hyde Park. Now, I'm sure you've all seen photographs of that remarkable structure, which, stayed, which survived on after the ex- uh, exposition. A truly impressive glass and steel extravaganza in which myriads of exhibits announced to the world not only the range and extent of the British Empire, but the self-confident creativity of the Victorian era. Four years later, the Paris International Exposition showcased the achievement and expectations of Second Empire France. In 1876, the United States celebrated its centennial with an exposition in Philadelphia. The Paris International Exposition returned in 1878 as means of projecting the hopeful expectations of the newly reestablished French Republic. Likewise did Sydney and Melbourne announce to the world in 1879 and 1880 respectively that Australia was ready to rejoin the United Kingdom that had created it but now as a near-equal partner. And so it went down through the rest of the century. Barcelona in 1888. Paris once again in 1889, celebrating the centenary 
of the French Revolution and the Brussels International Exposition of 1897, introducing a new invention called the automobile. The United States of America took to this genre with great enthusiasm. American industrial products had been so well received at the Paris International Exposition of 1878 that French visitors waxed ecstatic at the clean lines of industrially produced American products from great machines. This is told at length in Eskidian Space, Time, and Architecture. They just love the simple things that Americans produced. How beautiful could these simple tools as hammers, saws, shovels, and pliers be? Uh, now, of course, this is the culture that later thought Jerry Lewis was a great uh, uh, comedian and also discovered the Marx Brothers. So I think they ultimately were, were, had, had important to pay attention to that, uh, ex that response. Uh, at, the, at this Paris exposition, incidentally, a San Francisco-produced book, Hannah Millard's Grapes and Grapevines in California, 1877, designed by one of the uh, great publisher, pub, uh, printers in the history of this state, Edward Bosky, dean of San Francisco uh, printers, was judged the most beautiful book produced that year. Now, that's a remarkable achievement. Americans took to the exposition genre not only as a means of underscoring industrial achievement, but as a way of memorializing historical watersheds as well, rites of historical passage. The Centennial of Exposition in 1876 in Philadelphia was wildly successful as an occasion for social and cultural analysis of a republic now 100 years old. And indeed, that exposition asked all the uh, uh, states and the counties to submit histories uh, up until 1876. And San Diego and Los Angeles uh, submitted uh, histories to that exhibit, that ex exposition. Incidentally, very popular there was the Japanese, Japanese uh, pavilion, as the announcement of the influence of Japanese architecture to the, to the uh, United States after the opening of Japan from Com uh, by Commodore Perry in, in the 1850s. Cities across the nation, again, were then to, to invited to submit their histories, and, as well as their hopes for future development. Sending of city history and future plans uh, to the Frontier Exposition, for example, helped uh, Los Angeles and uh, San Diego define to, uh, to themselves and subsequently implement their desire to become uh, the urban capital of the American Southwest. As a genre, in short, the exposition offered Americans a compelling way to, to invoke and materialize the better culture, the better society, the better architecture and city planning towards which they aspired. Now, incidentally, I have to, to stop for a moment because modern uh, academic discourse is so loaded down with ironies that, of course, you read as something like this, the better culture, the better society, the better architecture and city plans towards they aspired, you say, oh, well, the professor's being ironic because basically that better culture was just a hegemonic way of depriving other people of their rights. Excuse me, wait, I, I fall asleep when I'm saying it. No, I really mean that there is an element of validity in what, the, what they want. There may have been uh, a aspects of hegemonic uh, boosterism, but there was also validity uh, in the civilization these uh, Americans wish to create, and which they express through this ex this ex these expositions. 
From this perspective, historians are still construing the powerful effect of the Columbian Exposition of 1893, commonly called the world's, Chicago World's Fair, ha had on that developing city in terms of planning and architecture. Of course, Daniel Hudson Burnham's great work. Uh, when historian Henry, Henry Adams, the perfect Massachusetts Brahmin, great-grandson and grandson of two presidents, visited the exposition in Chicago, his first response was to be astonished Astonished, I tell you, that such an impressive city as Chicago should be here in the first place. Uh, out here in the middle of an empty prairie, as Addison uh, considered it. Uh, subsequent to the exposition in Chicago, the man who planned the fair, architect and city planner uh, Daniel Hudson Burnham, proceeded to transform downtown and lakeside Chicago according to the image and likeness of the World's Fair, leaving behind a stadium, Still in use, a museum still in use, boulevards and parkways still in, all still in use. So in other words, that fair of 1893 is still alive and well in, in, in downtown uh, uh, Chicago. So, so popular and useful was the Chicago Exposition, San Francisco reprised it as the Midwinter Exposition of 1894 as a means of suggesting not only the future development of Golden Gate Park, but the development of the entire city of San Francisco, now beginning a transition from a high provincial regional capital to, the, to what it would want it to be, as it's described itself to, us in, to itself in this period, the Paris of the West. Uh, Burnham came out to San Francisco. He came up and put a, put a studio up on top of the Twin Peaks, and he designed and put the, Bur the Burnham plan together, which would have a great power over San Francisco, like the Nolan Plan, which I'll refer to later, and the Parson Plan had here for uh, San Diego. So too did Buffalo in 1901 use uh, the exposition as redevelopment, uh, 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 redevelopment um, strategies. St. Louis in 1904 and Seattle in 1909 used the exposition genre as a redevelopment scheme. Thus, G. Audrey, uh, Aubrey Davidson, founder of the Southern Trust and Commerce Bank and president of the San Francisco Ch San Diego Chamber of Commerce on 9 July 1909, proposed that since San Diego would be the first port of call north of the Panama Canal on the Pacific Coast, the city of San Diego should sponsor an exposition uh, to celebrate this event. To me, 105 years after this announcement, it still seems almost the height of chutzpah for a city of 49 to 50, maybe 50,000 residents to leverage itself into the category of an exposition city. And to, incidentally, I'll let you in to do it with great success, and not, even to, not only to break even, but to actually make money uh, from the fair, to show, to show a profit, uh, which was then plowed back into the development of Balboa Park. But before we accuse the late Mr. Davidson of chutzpah, we must consider a number of factors. First of all, the chambers of commerce in the United States constituted the de facto city governments in this country into and through the Civil War era. The great cities of the East Coast were in effect governed by their established oligarchies and attendant professional elites. That's why, for example, the names of all the mayors of New York City in the pre-Civil War era tend to be Dutch, Anglo-Dutch, or established uh, English. They tend to be Van Rensselaer's, or Clinton's, or Schuyler's, or Roosevelt's. 
Following the Civil War, the states in which these, in which these powers resided enlarged the franchise of American cities, gave them the power to issue bonds and contract debts, for example, privileges previously reserved for state legislators. You remember the medieval adage, nemo dot quad non hobbit, uh, no one gives what he doesn't have. The cities did not have the authority to give that power to themselves. This power resided in the states, and it's the states then that began to give it to the cities in the post-Civil War era, representing a transition from this Chamber of Commerce-style government, oligarchical-style government, to what is a more representative, uh, French representative, politically elected uh, franchise. Now, meantime, uh, uh, some 36 million immigrants were pouring into these cities, some of them passing through, but a surprisingly large number remaining on in the cities. Previously, for instance, in the election of 1824, there was a prophetic sign of a change in store, namely the, the politicization of, urban, of these urban immigrant populations when urban Irish immigrants voted overwhelmingly for Andrew Jackson. Of course, he, he could not get the electoral vote and went to the House of Representatives and John Quincy Adams served that term and Jackson came back later. In any event, as the portrait gallery of the New York Chamber of Commerce and the surviving files of New York newspapers in the post-Civil War era assert, the old oligarchies remained, but they now shared power with local immigrant-oriented political machines. Even Tammany Hall of New York, for instance, founded in the 1790s and celebrated by Washington Irving and many of his early sketch sketches of early New York uh, with its d deep pre-immigrant pre origins, even Tammany Hall renewed its power through enrolling immigrants into its, into its um, political uh, machines. The San Diego of the late 19th and early 20th century enjoyed the presence and the political participation of a talented oligarchy whose de facto leader and ceremonial sachem was no less than Ulysses S. Grant, Jr., and it also included former Civil War General Adolph Rosecrans, sugar heir and real estate investor John D. Spreckles, newspaper magnate Edward Scripps, investor and political reformer George White uh, Marston. Uh, if you were to do a portrait of this oligarchy, you would see it, it, it created in very dramatic ways by the boom of the 1880s, uh, which brought to San Diego a, a very large number of educated Anglo-American, Protestant, upper middle class people of means. Now, if anybody has a trouble with that, I'm sorry you have a trouble with history. You know? In other words, if you, want, if you want to pursue to say that the city was flooded with impoverished Irish, no, we, were, we impoverished Irish were not here, uh, or, or any other group, that we would all come later. The initial, the initial San Diego was, uh, that immigration from the 80s was a rather prosperous uh, immigration. It was dramatically uh, transformative of, of uh, cities like Pasadena, Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, too, in this same period. Like comparable oligarchies in Pasadena, Santa Barbara, and Berkeley, the San Diego, uh, the San Diego oligarchy was high-minded and upper-middle class in orientation. Now, does, am I saying that it was exempt from original sin? No, please. But I am saying that the general shared a kind of high-minded view as to what San Diego should become. It had a sense of, of, uh, of the civilization it wanted to create here. Even such an oligarch, uh, a vast wealth as John D. Spreckles, for example, sustained a high level of civic philanthropy oriented towards solid middle-class values. 
the San Diego oligarchical elite, in short, was educated, wealthy, and democratic, small d, within its own class when it came to sharing civic power with uh, other organizations, uh, workers, groups, etc., although they were not comparably developed at this time in San Diego. Anybody has a problem with that? Sorry, history just won't yield up uh, this kind of organization at this time. Lest all this sound overly bourgeois on my part, however, let me also point out that there was also a strong element of visionary ambition. Visionary ambition. Who was it, I have to ask Steve Vary, who was it, that said his favorite class was the middle class, the upper middle class, rather, because it contained within itself the spirit of its own contradiction. I forget who said that, but it's a wonderful phrase. Wonderful phrase. In other words, within this upper middle class culture that I'm describing, there's also a very strong elements of spiritualism, Swedenborgianism, uh, aestheticism, artistic ambition, political reform, early childhood education, all sorts of, of these things were swirling around in, in fragmented but present uh, 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 dynamics. Um, at least all this on very, then, that there, there was visionary ambition, dare I say dream vision, in the DNA code of San Diego as represented by its total culture in the early 1900s. Now I know the dream thing, the, I use the dream motif for my histories, but uh, it's, it, the, the more modern I get, the, le, the less uh, suitable it becomes in my own mind. Although I, have, I haven't written the book on the 60s yet, but I've, copy, uh, read, I've copywritten the uh, title. I, my, other, my other titles are Americans in the California Dream, The Dream Endures, uh, the, the 60s book, I uh, have the title, I haven't even written it yet, called, it's called Smoking the Dream, California in the 60s. <laughs> now, dare I say dream vision. This, this, this element of dream vision, of a reimagined world in the DNA code of San Diego is represented by its total culture in the early 1900s. Remember the re-founder of San Diego, Alonzo Erastus Horton, age 54 as of 1867, an upstate New Yorker of 17th century Yankee stock, decided late one evening after hearing a San Francisco lecturer extol the geography and climate of San Diego to liquidate all that he owned and move to San Diego. The decision to do this, Horton later claimed, in one of those, it came in one of those half-asleep, half-awake dream states that appear frequently. They appear frequently in the creative annals of California in this era because I think they're part of mid to late 19th century ways Americans explain to themselves without the vocabulary of the subconscious or a Freudian vocabulary, etc., explain themselves how things came along. For instance, uh, Isaac Pelton increases in 1876 the power of the water wheel six times up there in Coloma, California, uh, in a dream because he sees children put water uh, on a, uh, a cow and the water divides at the cow's nose. He goes to bed. Well, as we all know, uh, for 5,000 years, the water, water wheels, the water came in. We know from high school physics, and for every reaction, there's an equal and opposite reaction. And Pelton got the idea in a dream state, he tells us, if you put a division like a cow's nose and the water goes like this, you'll increase the water power by six times, and lo, lo and behold, the hydroelectric era is possible because of this uh, Northern California mechanics dream vision. But this is a very common thing, not just in California, but throughout 19th century intellectual life, where people dream themselves into, um, uh, into, into different uh, states or into different vocations, etc. 
Pelton, as I say, semi-dreamed himself into the invention of the Pelton wheel. Stepping ashore in San Diego on 15 April 1867, Horton almost immediately purchased 960 acres in 160-acre lots along what is today the harbor and downtown of the city in a successful effort to persuade the city itself to move from Old Town by the Mission to New Town by the Bay. Incidentally, this is very typical. The people who came to San, to San Diego had a little money. Had, had, had a, these kinds of people, they were not overwhelmingly rich, but they had enough. They had enough that they could establish themselves, that they would have time, the leisure. What does Aristotle say? Otium, the sense of, uh, of uh, stepping aside, having time to work on civic projects, etc. These people were visionary. The more they, with the 19th century went on, the more these kinds of people began to come into San Diego. And, and lo and behold, the city moves. The city moves from Old Town, not as an abandoned it, but moves to New Town by the bay. In 1870, Horton built a 100-room hotel. Well, I'd like to say that there was barely 100 people in San Diego at the time, but no, there were 3,000 or so. Horton House revealing a civic ambition, surely, for a remote coastal town of 3,000 residents. Two years earlier, in 1868, the city council, with perhaps New York City's then-developing Central Park in mind, put aside a 3,000-acre tract adjacent to Newtown for the eventual creation of a great Central Park for the city of San Diego to come. San Francisco, incidentally, had done the same thing in 1855 with what eventually became Golden Gate Park, although that was put aside in 55, the decade of Central Park's development, but really wasn't developed until the late 1870s by William Hammond Hall and, really, and then later by John McLaren at the turn of the century. What I'm trying to suggest here is an early inner interpenetration of civic ambition and vision in the San Diego of the 1870s and 80s. Indeed, there were even discussions during the boom, talk about visionary, there were even discussions during the boom in the 1880s of locating in San Diego a campus of the recently founded University of Southern California. More sensibly, perhaps, the construction of the Hotel Del Coronado uh, fulfilled this need for the great resort hotels of the late 19th and early 20th century, especially those in California, but also those in the Michigan area, the Great Lakes area. They, like the urban research universities that were also beginning to make their appearance in this era, embodied fusions of practical necessity, i.e. places to live and stay, and utopian statements in the sense that these hotels were ideal. These hotels were sort of expositions. They were ide idealized presentations of the urban environment. In the case of the great resort hotels, such as the Del Coronado, the element of utopian statement predominated, creating an institution that allowed San Francisco to, uh, to uh, to, uh, that in San Francisco allowed the Fairmont Hotel and the St. Francis Hotel to do the same thing, which is to say to stylize itself to itself and to the world for what it believed itself to be. Staying at the Hotel Del, Del Carnado in 1905, Henry James understood this ambition immediately, finding in, in the hotel a metaphor for Southern California, uh, for San Diego as an Italy awaiting its history. The current rise of San Diego as a health resort reinforced this emergent DNA code, inserting into that code a renewed and intensified appreciation for the biological premises of life itself that would in time, as this impulse evolved, 
this sense of San Diego as health resort, as a place to be reborn again in health. It's extremely important. It's a great book. It's a very small book. I wish I could have written a great small book. John Bauer's book, Health Seekers of Southern California, is a remarkable book on this topic. But th this inserts into this to the DNA code of San Diego, renewed intensified appreciation to the biological premises of life itself that would in time, as this impulse evolved, account for the emergence of San Diego as garden capital, center for oceanographic research, sponsor of arguably the best zoo in the United States, and eventually epicenter of biotech and advanced research in, in the biological sciences. When I suggest DNA code, Am I saying that there exists a DNA code out there that can be scientifically, uh, that can materially isolated? No, I don't, but I'm kind of halfway suspicious. I'm, one of my favorite philosophers is uh, George Santayana because he, he, he manages simultaneously to be a Platonist and a materialist. So I, I, I know that I'm using it as a metaphor, but at the same time, you almost think that it's a dynamic in urban development, the way that cities incorporate in their founding era dimensions and that those dimensions, those dynamics do not go away. They, they, they morph into other things, they recombine, but they very rarely go away. In my own native city, I'm a fourth generation San Franciscan, for instance, uh, in 1855 when the city was eight years old, produced an 800-page history of itself called The Annals of San Francisco. In other words, a, a high level of narcissistic self-regard entered into the San Francisco DNA code very early. Uh, and and, and the, so this, this health issue, this biological thing, is extremely important because that health aspect, these, these environments here that we are looking at, uh, have, make this. All these statements are encoded in one way or another in, in this expo exposition. So, so did this early element of dream uh, actualization, actualization through dream itself, go stratospheric with the arrival in 1897 of Catherine Tingley, Madame Bla Blavatsky's successor as leader of theophysy in the United States. A broadly syncretic melange of Egyptian, Neoplatonic, Gnostic, Kabbalist, Vedic, Buddhist, Brahmanical, and Swedenborgian teachings. Oh, that's wonderful. I would love to I would I'd just love to sort of do that roll call again, but I won't. And it's just the whole, all these wonderful mystical transcendent, transcendental traditions, etc., fused into one philosophy and way of life, uh, and one place, Point Loma in San Diego, and one institution, the Theosophical Society there. Theosophy postulated the existence of a world soul, imminent in nature, with which one might take connection through meditation, the arts, and mystical experience. In the years following Madame Tingley's arrival, the Point Loma Theosophical Community, which she founded, became a mainstream San Diego institution, and among other contributions, caring for orphan children, for example, encouraged a number of promising painters, Maurice Braun, most notably, uh, to, to create an impressionist and post-impressionist body of work extolling the ethereal beauty of the San Diego landscape. A landscape and when human habitation is shown, the sort of almost quality of otherworldliness uh, in, in the San Diego built environment. Now, when it comes to intellectual analysis, the 18th century man of letters Samuel Johnson tells us it is not necessary to be original. I'm trying to imitate Johnson saying this. It is only necessary to be correct. Now, I can therefore say, using shorthand terms, that in that Hamiltonian 
versus Jeffersonian dialectic at the core of American identity. Hamilton's report on manufacturers, Hamilton and the Treasury Department, Ham Hamilton and the organization of the federal budget, and Jefferson and all these other things that Jefferson did. And that dialectic, which is to say uh, realism versus imaginative vision, agricultural pastoralism versus industry, big city versus whatever Monticello is, how one wants to describe that, San Diego and its oligarchy were moving in a Jeffersonian direction. And by Jeffersonian direction, it wasn't dependent upon slavery, of course, but it was dependent on income coming from income that was already in possession, money that had been made elsewhere and then brought into uh, San Diego. I think that's a very important point. It's, uh, not that the East leaders were, some of them were, of course, were like Audrey Davidson, were very go-ahead business people. These are the years, for example, in which Kate Sessions, the first woman in California to qualify as a university-trained landscape architect, opened her nursery on 32 least acres in the northwest corner of City Park, as Balboa Park was then known, from which, drawing upon her stock of 20,000 plants, Kate Sessions planted thousands, and it, as a business, it was commercial. It was she was and hired by the people of San Diego to do this, the homeowners, etc., and the and the city, thousands of eucalyptus, palm, pepper, acacia, elm, oak, torrey pine, especially up here in Monterey cypress trees throughout the park and park and streets and boulevards of the city, in an effort, she said, to make San Diego nothing less than the most beautifully landscaped city in the nation. Publisher Edward Scripps joined her in this effort, providing trees and shrubs from his Miramar ranch north of the city. In August 1902, Kate Sessions, an equal opportunity oligarch, incidentally, I want to make sure that you understand that this oligarchy was men and women, very much part of the progressive oligarchical establishment of the city. Uh, George, uh, Kate Sessions joined George White, Marston, and banker Julius uh, Wagen Wagenheim to form a Park Improvement Committee, and they brought out Samuel Parsons, Jr., landscape architecture architect for the state of New York, formal, former superintendent of Central Park, to produce a plan for City Park, which was completed in July 1903. This is the same year, incidentally, that the Committee for the Adornment and Beautification of San Francisco hired Daniel Watson Burnham to come out to San Francisco and prepare a comparable plan. Four years later, George White Marston brought to San Diego the noted city planner John Nolan of Cambridge, Massachusetts, to prepare a comprehensive plan for the city, paralleling that provided by Parsons for the park. The Nolan Report of 1908, which is a beautiful, beautiful document, envisioned San Diego as a city capable of replicating on its spectacular site the best of the city beautiful, that is to say the orderly city, the open city, the city of squares, parks, boulevards, and the Mediterranean city, with special reference to Naples, Nice, Seville, and Rio de Janeiro. All these impulses and ambitions must be brought to bear when we recreate for ourselves the organization of the Panama California Exposition Company. On 10 September 1909, Ulysses S. Grant, Jr., president, for a city of uh, 49,000 to mount such an exposition, however, Federal approval and subsequent funds would be necessary, given the focal point of the exposition being the great federal achievement of the Panama Canal itself, 
But like the Suez Canal nearly a half century earlier would change history itself. After all, the Suez Canal gave Verdi the commission to compose Aida. Even that would have, it would have been enough to have that great opera. Not surprisingly, the city of San Francisco saw itself, and not San Diego, as the heir apparent to the canal-created opportunity for a federally recognized exposition. Between 1909 and 1912, San Francisco tried every trick in the book and almost succeeded in having the San Diego Exposition be denied federal recognition, which almost happened. Only the important role played by California in the election of Woodrow Wilson to the presidency in 1912 gave the San Diego oligarchy the, the friend in the White House it needed to secure federal support. That and the simultaneous election of Democratic Congressman William Kettner. On 23 May 1913, an accommodating President Wilson signed Kettner's bill authorizing federal departments to participate in the San Diego Exposition and set up pavilions and exhibitions requiring no admission fees. Now, I realize that you would like to get to the exposition in terms of its construction, design, and opening. So would I. But I have two more themes to introduce into this melange of motivations and dynamics. A romanticized Hispanic past and the international workers of the world. Of late, there's been numerous studies of the uses to which Anglo-American Southern California appropriated the Hispanic past of California as its reimagined colonial history. The vast majority of these studies, to include my own, correctly see as an important catalyst for this development Helen Hunt Jackson's novel Ramona, 1884. Setting out to write a vigorous defense of the land rights of Southern California Indians, a sort of Uncle Tom's cabin for Indians, which she in part accomplishes, Jackson also created an appealing portrait of the mission and Mexican eras. The ambiance and ethos of this reimagined Ramona land, as opposed to actual social reform, provided branding for Anglo-Americans in Southern California in search of a usable past and in search of a branding for development, for growth. The influence of Ramona, quite frankly, lasted into the 1940s, and if you connect it with the ongoing influence of Johnson Macaulay's 1920 novel, The Mark of Zorro, it continues into the recent film starring Anthony Hopkins and Antonio Banderas, Catherine Zeta-Jones, in which an aging Zorro passes, passes on his mission and his skills. This imagined California, this California that never really exists, more Spanish than Spain itself. Most considerations of the Southern California use of this Hispanic past are mildly hostile which is to say they stress the romanticization of this past and its use as cover-up for the harsh treatment of Hispanics in the American era. Uh, yet these criticisms possessed here and there of validity do not explain away the power and pervasiveness of the myth, if indeed we granted only the status of a myth as a controlling metaphor for, among other things, architectural design and development in Southern California into the present. This, during, this was during the period when the New England uh, construction was revitalizing the New England architecture of the 18th century, when New York was revitalizing Dutch colonial architecture, uh, when, uh, when the South was bringing back the uh, Greco revival plantation architecture. This is a period of architectural revival in the growing regions of this country in general, and in Southern California it had this, uh, this component. 
Nor does the explanation of the use of the Hispanic narrative to disguise economic or other forms of exploitation, however elements of truth it might contain, explain away the ongoing commitment of university-based scholars from Herbert Eugene Bolton down to the present, basing themselves on the earlier works of Adolf Bandelier and the more popular presentations of Charles Fletcher Lummis to a dazzling record of scholarship that truly anchors this region onto its Hispanic past that has become in demographic terms a redefining part of its future as well. In other words, the scholarship that was done in this period uh, by Southern Californians into the history of New Spain and Mexico is just dazzling and we're still living living off it. In other words, you just cannot dismiss the essential paradigm of Ramona for Anglo-America, which is to say, this is our usable past in some way as well, or we should make it our usable past, as merely one big masquerade for hegemony. Now that the Hispanic past, so well documented by scholars, has come forward as such an important and authentic part of our present. This is the shock of recognition, I believe, that architect Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue must have felt when he, when he illustrated Sylvester Baxter's 12-volume Spanish Colonial Architecture of Mexico City, 1901. And I must break off to say that this is a sense of awe that I myself felt as a graduate student at Harvard in 1966 when I examined these same volumes in Widener Library. A shock of recognition that here at the highest levels of architectural scholarship was a presentation, dare I say it, infinitely beyond Ramona, but not repudiating Ramona's more populist message. In these 12 volumes, Baxter presented the, and authenticated for an Anglo-American audience the grandeur of Spanish colonial architecture and by extension the culture that had nurtured such architecture. Running as far north as San Xavier del Bac in northern Sonora, present-day Arizona. H.A. Richardson, incidentally, felt a similar shock of recognition when he discovered the power of French Romanesque and adapted it as the public architecture of choice for these United States, from Seaver Hall at Harvard Yard to Trinity Church on the Boston Common to the quadrangles of Stanford University, his last great work. In a like manner, beginning at an earlier period and continuing into the 20th century uh, of the Yale, Princeton, Duke, and the University of Chicago, Gothic Revival also had a message for America that went deeper than the warmed over Sir Walter Scott that is sometimes depicted as it being. This is a topic for another lecture, and, it, and it, as is the comparably authentic and more easily understood classical tradition in the United States, to include Southern California, a topic regarding which I have just read an absolutely magnificent manuscript for a noted university publisher, magnificent book on classical architecture in Southern California. In other words, the Spanish colonial tradition and the multiple Hispanic and Moorish traditions also in play in the Panama, California Exposition cannot be completely dismissed as hegemonic disguises at their worst or at their best to retreat into an imagined pseudo-past. In some powerful and mysterious way that remains a challenge to historians and cultural critics to understand, the Hispanic past was authentically, or an effort was made to authentically appropriate the Hispanic past in the late 19th and early 20th centuries amidst all the hokum that went with that process. This was a process, incidentally, that went back to efforts such as Anglo-American high Protestants as Washington Irving, George Tickner, 
Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, Charles Eliot Norton, and other members of the Dante Circle, as well as Henry James, to reconnect Anglo-America with the European Mediterranean past. Second dynamic, enter the IWW, the International Workers of the World, which between 1910 and the very early 1930, shall we use the idiom, it scared the bejesus out of San Diego. Not only are positive occasions promotive of expositions, we must remember social traumas can play a similar role. Recovery from the Civil War, the divisive railroad strikes in the early mid-1870s, as I say, had something to do with the centennial uh, ex ex exposition. In the case of the Panama Pacific uh, International Exposition in San, in San Francisco, as the late Philip Fradkin pointed out in 2006, the trauma that had been overcome and the celebration of that overcome trauma, but it was a trauma that still lingered in the collective consciousness of the city, was the utter destruction of the city by earthquake and fire in April 1906. Man-made fires, it must be remembered, ineptly employed to counter earthquake fires, as well as the suppressed number of dead, 300 claimed, more than 3,000 presently documented. The illegal exercise of martial law, a totally illegal shoot-to-kill order by the mayor of the city, resulting in a yet-to-be-documented number of minority casualties. Investigation by President Theodore Roosevelt into corruption in city government, resulting in indecisive graft trials. These causes, as well as the, the celebration of the rebuilt city, played the role in the Panama Pacific Exposition. Without going into it overmuch, the IWW free speech crusade in San Diego, followed by the equally bitter 1912 dock strike spearheaded by the ID, IWW, divided San Diego into bitter factions of far left and far right that totally belied the city's cherished image of itself as a haven for depoliticized pursuit of the good life, which was very essential to the progressive formula. So these, these, these um, uh, equitable progressives became radicalized, uh, most of them, on, on, on the right and uh, to face the left radicalization of the IDWW. An estimated, uh, during this time, an estimated 5,000 men, IWW men, poured into San Diego during the free speech fight. Hundreds of them were arrested. Acting on a recommendation of the grand jury, the, the San Diego Board of Supervisors authorized mounted patrols of citizens to guard the county line to prevent further infiltration by IWW activists. Comparable groups met trains coming into the city in an effort to remove suspicious characters. The nationally known anarchist Emma Goldman left town when a mob of some 500 gathered outside her hotel. Her companion, Ben Reitman, was tarred and feathered. Now, these are hardly scenarios from Ramona land. And so the Panama Pacific California Exposition built its Spanish city on a hill, assembling the constituent parts of the San Diego identity within the matrix of Spanish colonial, Spanish, Hispano-Moorish, and North African Moorish architecture. Uh, writing a seven-part history of the exposition in the Journal of San Diego History for the winter of 1990, Richard Amaro attributes to real estate developer Colonel David Charlie Collier, Director General of the Exposition, Colonel being a state militia title, the determining authority for choosing initially Indian, Mission, and Pueblo styles for the Panama, California Exposition. At that time, San Diego-based architect Irving Gill was still in the running as the lead architect. And certainly Gill, whose architecture 
constituted fusions of the geometric and some of these styles, as evidence say in the Bishop School, might very, these Hispanic styles might very well have created for the exposition buildings that were simultaneously modern, but recalling as well North Africa, Spanish, and Pueblo prototypes. Under consideration at the same time as well was architect John Galen Howard, supervising architecture of the, architect of the University of California at Berkeley and a master of classical revival is being developed on that campus in the aftermath of the adoption of Paris architect Emile Barnard's plan for the UC campus, UC Berkeley campus, winner of a 1900 international competition sponsored by Phoebe Apperson Hurst. I suggest all this because had Gill and Howard been chosen, the plan for the Panama, California exposition might have been more city beautiful oriented as it was at the Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco. And the architecture might have been, there's only one way to say it, more Irving Gill, which is to say geometric and abstract in its suggestion of Mediterranean styles edging into Austrian secessionism. For supervisory architect, however, the Buildings and Grounds Commission chose the New York-based Bertram Grosvenor Goodhue, with Irving Gill appointed as assistant, which was truly mixing apples and oranges. For Gill, the longtime partner, uh, for uh, 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 Goodhue, the longtime partner of Ralph Adams Cram, was up to that time the master of Gothic revival, as his and Cram's West Point Chapel St. Thomas Episcopal Church in New York and the chapels of the University of Chicago and Princeton show while the architecture of Irving Gill was anchored in pure in geometry. It was obviously not a marriage made in heaven and when the landscape firm of Olmsted and Olmsted walked out on his contract, so did Irving Gill. It was replaced by Carlton Winslow of Goodhue's New York office. Interestingly enough, however, Goodhue was himself in a process of evolution. Not that he repudiated Gothic revival, but under the influence of Baxter's treatise on Spanish colonial architecture, he was moving in that direction. And as, and as the, his later work, the Los Angeles Public Library and the state capital of Nebraska would later show, he was also in the way learning from Irving Gill regarding the simplification of architectural forms while retaining their reference to Mediterranean prototypes, which I think you see the simplification of walls, for instance, at the, uh, at the Panama, California exposition show the lingering influence of Gill. San Diegans wanted a magical Spanish city, suggestive of San Diego as if not the capital of the Spanish Southwest, perhaps San Jose, San, San, Santa Fe rather held that honor, than at least the major port of the Spanish Southwest and the Pacific coast of, uh, of Latin America, all this energized and made global by the Panama Canal. Once again, there is much history in the dream and much dream in the history. For San Diego was where New Spain and Mexico envisioned a great port arising, and where in 1844 the Roman Catholic Church established the headquarters for the newly founded diocese of both Californias, which unfortunately the newly appointed Bishop uh, Francisco Diego uh, uh, Garcia y Moreno uh, moved to the more populated Santa Barbara. In any event, Bertram Goodhue's California building, 1914, as Howard Mumford Jones points out, was destined to become one of the most architecturally influenced buildings in American history when judged by the Mediterranean revival it helped engender throughout Southern California. Primarily because of its success, of course, but also because it embodied a usable past encoding a religious and pastoral ideal. 
The Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco trumpeted industrialism, Hamiltonianism. At its Palace of Industry, for instance, a newly manufactured Ford rolled off the assembly line every 20 minutes. An entire hall was given to diesel engines. Although the commerce and industry building featured in the, uh, at, at the Panama, California, in San Diego, featured an exhibition of late model trucks, the emphasis of the Panama, California exposition was elsewhere. Enshrined around the base of the dome of the California building was and still is a quotation taken from the Latin Vulgate of St. Jerome, Terram frumenti hordae acminarum in quoficus et malogranata et oliveta nascentur terram olae acmelis. San Diego, in short, was to be developed as a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey. Not the industrial future was ignored, but was kept on a much smaller scale than that of San Francisco and subordinated to this ideal. Nevertheless, despite his pastoral ambition, the fine arts building on the south side of the Plaza de California exhibited a surprising array of paintings, incidentally, by the Ashcan School of American Realism. Glackens, Henry, Lukes, Prendergast, John Sloan, as if to suggest the gritty realities brought to the city over the past few years by the IWW, that these gritty realities were not forgotten, or perhaps even more slyly, some form of ironic contrast between the fair as dream city and the realities of American, American life could not be fully avoided. Uh, it, it, on the day before the exposition opened, John D. Spreckles presented an organ pavilion to the Park Commission uh, for the enjoyment of the people of the city. That's still in, in with us. And at the stroke of midnight and opening day, 1 January 1915, President Woodrow Wilson, sitting at his desk at 3 a.m. in the morning, so grateful was he for the help California in making him president, pressed a button and connected to, connected to the Western Union, exhibited in the Science and Education Building, which turns on an electrical power at the exposition, including a large spotlight attached to a balloon 1,500 feet above the Plaza de Panama that illuminated a three-mile area from the sky and brought aglow the buildings of the exposition. More than 1,000 electric lights lined El Prado and other pathways after sunset. The Spreckles Organ Pavilion was intricately lit for evening concerts. We must remember the poetic power of electricity in terms of thinking about elect of, of, of uh, industrialism. The poetic power of electricity in 1915, its ability to suggest the future and its growing intricacy as a source of street lights and streetscapes of int intriguing lightning effects. This was, however, no ne there was no neon, incidentally, however, at the San Diego Exposition. Like El Greco's painting of Toledo before the storm, the exposition, and we've seen some of these wonderful uh, postcards uh, exhibiting the fair, was entered across the soaring Seven Arts Cabrillo Bridge based on the Alcantara Bridge uh, of, of Toledo. Now we can go on and look at the, and sort of decode the, uh, the fair uh, in many ways. We can look, for instance, in terms of the dialogue with Spain and the architecture. We can also look at the overwhelming effort of a basically Anglo-American Protestant community to be kind and to, uh, and to uh, present and pay uh, respect to the Roman Catholic tradition as represented uh, in its, its current residence, but also in its Hispanic peoples from the past in terms of the California State Building, the St. Francis Assisi uh, Chapel. 
We can look at the more than 300 Native Americans from the Apache, Navajo, Supai, Tewa, and Tiwa tribes who live near the North Gate on a five-acre mesa in replicas of teepees or pueblos provided by the Santa Fe Railway. Now, from a perspective of contemporary sensibility, uh, the spectacle of the Santa Fe Railroad promoted tourism to the southwest of the survivors of takeover of the southwest by the United States, etc. Obviously, the irony is compounded when it's also noted that four troops of the 1st Cavalry Regiments, uh, Cavalry Regiments, United States Army, maintained a parallel camp on the west slope of Florida Canyon outside exposition grounds as another living exhibit. Uh, but I think it's important to, to look at people from the point of view of 1915 look at these Native Americans uh, of 1915 and to not see, that, to see, to take pride in what they were taking pride in, the survival of their culture and their artifacts. In fact, two Native American infants were, bought in the temporary, were born in the temporary Indian settlement and named in honor, uh, one in honor of William Howard Taft and one in honor of Theodore Roosevelt. Uh, San Diego's Garden City re received more than its fair share of of a celebration uh, in, in, the, in, these, uh, in the planning facilities and, of course, in the uh, botanical building constructed of redwood, lath, and steel trusses painted to match uh, the redwood. The botanical building on the north side of El Prado abounded in rotating floral exhibits. In other words, as you turn over each of the items of the 19th century identity that I looked at, to include actually health, clinical health, exercise classes, nutrition, conversation, etc. Each aspect of that 19th century San Diego quest and early 20th century quest are put also in the, uh, in, the, um, uh, in, in the exposition. If the leadership of San Diego wanted the values embodied in the dream city of the exposition to remain stabilized as civic values in a developing city, they would have to deal with the question of what exact businesses San Diego should be in. And that's why I think, for instance, the Marine and Navy uh, relationship to the fair is very important to pay attention to. Uh, and which is why, with the help of Congressman William Kettner, the San Diego oligarchy in the aftermath of the fair actively courted the Navy and Marine Corps to locate in San Diego. Indeed, in 1916, following the close of the exposition, the San Diego Chamber of Commerce created a fund of $280,000, some of that money earned by the exposition, to purchase strategic properties throughout the city for presentation uh, to the Navy. When it came time for planner John Nolan to update the plan in 1925, he depicted the new San Diego as the city that encompassed a naval presence at its core identity. Indeed, architect uh, Goodhue gave a repeat performance on behalf of the city when he was chosen to design the Naval Training Station and Marine Corps Recruit Depot on, on North Island. For these facilities, Goodhue devised a Spanish revival scheme that was more campus than barracks and linked the Navy and Marine Corps. In short order then, the exposition, uh, the San Diego Exposition of 1915 uh, left San Diegans with a question, what next? And that question that uh, was answered almost immediately, we're going to join the Navy, uh, that the, the image that the, the um, Metaphor that we're going to embrace is the, is the Gibraltar of the Pacific, uh, and, and which will allow an int introduction of industrial culture, shipmaking, ship repairs, etc., into San Diego without the stresses of the IWW strikes uh, of the pre-exposition era. 
selective, socially structured through rank and protocol, the Navy brought an idealized industrial presence to San Diego. Ship repair and aviation involved sophisticated levels of industrial engineering and technology as the construction and testing of the Spirit of St. Louis in San Diego also proved. The Navy and Marine Officer Corps mingled easily with the local oligarchy and sailors and Marines did not go out on strike uh, as the IW, that's called mutiny in the military, as the IWW did in 1912. Uh, the Panama California Exposition then in short of 1950 encoded something very important about San Diego, which was, which, and this important message was reprised in 1916 and again in 1935. Like its predecessor in 1915, the California Pacific International Exposition of 1935 celebrated San Diego as the capital of the crossroads city, the Spanish of the Spanish Southwest, and the Pacific Basin. And, and you have a, a reprise of, of, of that uh, uh, um, uh, issue. In June 1935, the Pacific Fleet assembled in San Diego Harbor for Fleet Week battleships, cruisers, carriers, and other vessels, 400 naval, aver, able, naval aver aircraft, 55,000 enlisted men, 3,000 officers under the command of Admiral Joseph Rees. Never before in the history of the United States had such a fleet assembled in one place under one command. For the time being, the San Diego formula, the San Diego solution, uh, the San Diego question posed by the Panama, California Exposition had received an answer. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.